My name is Reggie. I'm about kicking ass. I'm about taking names. And we're about making podcasts. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week, we are reaching into the mailbag and pulling out some of your greatest questions about all sorts of things from strategy guides to games and IPs that we wish existed. I'm Jason Trier. I'm Kirk Hamilton. And I'm Maddie Myers. Hello. Hey. So my friends. Welcome Hello. back to the podcast that never ends. Um, <laughs> it just goes on and on, my friends. Guys, I'm feeling good today. It's my birthday. I don't know if you guys knew this. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Jason Schreier. That's the day we're recording, I should say, not the day yes. this will be live. And mm-hmm. if you guys want to give me a real good birthday present, make it so at tomorrow's Nintendo Indie Direct, they announce Hollow Knight Silk Song. Um, hopefully, hopefully by <laughs> Thursday, Kirk will bing in to be like, oh my God, Nintendo. To announce Silk Song. Well, they have to announce it and also make it available right on that right day now. because then I will get and we will be one step closer toward playing Dead Space Two for the show. That's true. Uh, well, I also had the same prediction, so I don't know. But right. also, um, mm. it'll be a great birthday present for me. Uh, That's true. I am thirty-five, which feels both old and young at the same time. I guess it depends who you ask. <laughs> yes, it sounds pretty pretty young to me. Mm-hmm. It's you can rent a car plus ten more years. Like you can That's rent a you car. Can and you can for really think you can about this is the year you can run for president. Oh, it's thank like the goodness. Final milestone. You've been counting um, down to that, I know. Yeah. We've yeah, all been yeah, waiting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, I think that's the last like legal milestone. I think there is, in Jewish tradition, there's like a milestone. You can't study Kabbalah, which is like ancient mysticism, mysticism until you turn 40, I think. But okay. other than that, I think 35, once you're past 35, it's like, yep, now you it's can all do down everything, the hill. Yeah. Or it's all uphill. Right. At some point, you like start qualifying for senior benefits and stuff. So there's that to look forward oh, to. Oh, right. True. Yeah. You get That's discounts a at a certain point. A different conversation. Speaking of senior benefits, uh, <laughs> if you want to help us make this show so we don't have to take out Social Security, you can become a Maximum Fun member. Even if you mixed our big fundraising drive, the Max Fun Drive, you can still become a member today and get access to a whole lot of cool stuff. Um, so if you become a member of our show, we are, by the way, we are not ad support. We are entirely listener supported from all you fine folks, and we are eternally grateful to those of you who help us make this show. If you go to maximumfund.org slash join, you become a member, put as much or as little as you'd like into the show. In exchange, you will get a monthly bonus episode from us, including last month's episode, which was what was that Horizon that we yeah. did last yes, month? Yeah, Beans Cast, where we spoiled Horizon Forbidden West. And this month, which is coming up soon, which is a Beans Cast on. Elden Ring. So if you're mm. if you're ready to hear us talk more about Elden Ring, this month you will get your chance. That'll be up late in May. So become a member today, maximumfund.org slash join. All right, Kirk, Maddie, right. it is time that we open up the mailbag and answer some listener questions. It is Yay. time, of course, for burning questions a name of which by the way the burning questions kind of <laughs> use of that brand is 10 years old did you guys did you guys know that kirk wow. and i first came up with it at kataka are you years the ago. first person to come up with the phrase burning questions i assume <laughs> yes. you are because we haven't been contacted so, and yes. told to stop using it so i think you're the first person to ever come yeah, we, up with we that own phrase the, uh, yeah we own the copyright yeah we we patented it and mm-hmm. uh, we, have a, we own the patent <laughs> <laughs> well, the patent it's is just—it's a, a picture yeah. of—it's a picture of mm-hmm. a bag full of letters that's yep. on fire. And it's on fire. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty so. dangerous, honestly. Um, 
So let's get on with it, shall we? These are questions yeah. from all of you fine listeners out there. And just a reminder, you can reach us with your own questions at tripleclick at maximumfun.org. Um, send us some good ones. We like interesting questions, and we got some, right, good, right. some good ones this week, too. A mix of really questions. old... By the way, if you don't hear your question like uh, in the next mailbag after you send it in, do not worry. It all gets stored in a, in a big document somewhere. And sometimes I pull out some really old ones. Like this next one is actually a pretty old one. Um, Maddie, why don't you kick us off? Read us sure. this first question. So this is from Caleb who writes, I have questions regarding video game leaks. I understand this is a pretty broad topic, but it blows my mind how people are able to leak things like entire Nintendo Directs and Pokemon presentations. Do companies actively seek out people to leak their information as a means of driving conversation, then blame others in a Tim Robinson in a hot dog suit saying, we're trying to find the guy who did this style? Are there rogue employees spilling the beans? Surely the big triple A's know loose lips sink ships and try to keep things under wraps slash know how to protect secretive information. I know Jason has reported on countless leaks and I'm just curious how he's able to acquire that information. Obviously there's some means slash identities that absolutely need to remain a mystery. Well, you see, my sources are one. Uh, <laughs> let me let me read my entire email. Um, well, so I mean, to answer Caleb's one of Caleb's questions here, I have never heard or known about any like intentional leak, and that seems like the type of thing that is like fodder for forum conspiracy theories, where oh, it's yeah. like, oh man, can't believe Ubisoft planted another fake le- like leak, quote unquote, of the new Assassin's Creed game to get attention, but mm-hmm. like no company wants that to happen. Or the alter- the similar alternative, which is company puts out huge trailer that has clearly taken a lot of time to put together to distract from some bad news about the company. As far as I know, that's not right. ever been the case, and yet it is such right. a common thing for people to angrily tweet about. Sorry to yeah. all those people, but I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, as far as I know, that's not to say that it doesn't happen or hasn't happened. And sometimes I see some leaks or some consistently leaked information from certain companies that makes me think, oh, man, I wonder if they are kind of like either kind of waving their hand to it or not caring that this is happening. Um, but having personal, personally actually interacted with the companies involved after reporting on leaks, um, trust me, they are not pleased. Uh, you Ubisoft, Ubisoft has not been pleased with various reporting I've done over the years. Um, as far as like how people are able to leak things like entire Nintendo Directs and Pokemon presentations, those are always interesting. Um, it's rare for an entire Direct or an entire marketing presentation to get leaked. If it does, sometimes it's because someone has access to like backend stuff that they shouldn't. Um, like they might have access to web materials, websites. Um, they might have been able to like get access to blog posts that they shouldn't have, stuff like that. Um, that's often how that stuff would come out because there aren't actually a lot of people out there who would like know everything that's going to be in a Nintendo Direct. Even the people who work for Nintendo, for the most part, are not going to know that unless they need to know it. Um, so that in my experience, or, or at least in my kind of educated speculation is usually how that sort of thing happens, um, as opposed to in individual leaks, which might come from a whole bunch of different points on kind of the production, the production chain. Yeah. Why do you think people do it though, Jason? You didn't answer that part. 
Well, it depends. There are a lot of different reasons that someone might leak. In the case of like someone hacking or like getting into the web database, it could be just like because they're curious, bragging and rights, clown and stuff. Sure, yeah, yeah bragging rights. Um, sometimes it'll be disgruntled employees wanting to piss off their um, the companies that are mistreating them or something like that. Um, sometimes it'll be employees who are super stoked about their work and are like, I want people to see this, even if they don't care, uh, even even if they know that it's going to be revealed officially in a month or two anyway. I think that one really surprises people, the one you just said, because uh-huh. it's then if you were to report on it, people sometimes at the company will be like, oh, Jason spoiled the surprise or oh now this this surprise has been taken away from our employees but it's sometimes it's an employee themselves who's chosen to leak that information it's almost always an employee when it's stuff that i'm reporting on it's almost always people who are involved in the but but that said i mean it's it depends what kind of leaks we're talking about assuming i'm assuming that this 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 question is more about product leaks than Mm -hmm. it is about like Like um positive leaks announcements that are fun and exciting as opposed to leaking a horrific workplace yeah uh huh. Yeah, for the most part. And then there's stuff like uh, more newsy stuff. The stuff that I'm more interested in is like um, stuff like, I don't know, an acquisition. And so that sort of thing can come from a number of different sources, including something that I always find hilarious is I'll talk to a lot of people and I'll ping them about something. And then it'll that so, like, let's say I ask person A. Person A might take it to like a secret develop game developer forum or mailing list or something, or of which there are a ton. Um, and then it turns out that I'm also talking to person B, who's on that forum. And person B will be like, "Oh, I just heard about it here." And I'll be like, mm-hmm. "Hmm, I wonder where that's where that information originated from." Um, but yeah, but there there are a lot of different reasons. And then there's also the third kind of group of people who might leak stuff. I think really there are more than three, but a third that comes to mind immediately is people who hate the opacity of the video game industry and just want things to be more transparent and want information to get out there um, or just appreciate what a journalist does and want to like help that journalist get scoops and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there there could be all sorts of reasons, um, but I, I think there are some big differences between the type of work that a journalist might be doing versus, um, hey, I'm going to post this entire list of games in the Nintendo Direct on 4chan or on Reddit or whatever, which which kind of has a different, um, which 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 has a different purpose and serves a different purpose, has different goals and serves a different purpose than the the reported leak. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kirk, you want to take the next question? Sure. This question comes from Kevin. Kevin writes, "Hey, triple click. What are some truly one of a kind games that you would like to see more examples of?" This question was inspired by me finally getting around to LA Noir after such a long stay in my backlog. The somewhat episodic case-based structure plus the largely non-violent and investigative gameplay is so sustainable and refreshing to me. It makes me wish there were more games of this exact kind out there. I remember feeling the same way about Return of the Obra Din. So yeah, what are some one-of-a-kind games that you'd like to see more of? Return of the Obra Din was what occurred to me originally. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And he said it. <laughs> well, we say Outer Wilds all the time. There are some games that are sort of similar to Outer Wilds, but nothing that's quite like it in terms of puzzle solving and expanding your brain to think about an, a space in a different way. I I would also say Mist, even though I know it's influenced so many games, I don't feel like any of the games that it's influenced have really been quite like it, which is mm. unusual because it was so popular and 
I mean, sure, there are certainly walking simulators, but that isn't the only thing about Myst that was exciting to me. When I played it, it was mostly the storytelling and the characters and discovering why these two brothers were so angry and, you know, the situation with their father, etc. And all these mystical worlds as the backdrop to it all. And I mean, I guess there's there. I mean, we could list other walking simulators, but I, I just don't feel like there's anything that quite feels the way that Myst did. And that's why it's been remade like 6000 times. Mm. Yeah, Lucas Pope makes games like this in general, right? I mean, Papers, Please, the game yeah. that he made before Return of the Oberdin is a game unlike any that I've ever played. It was such an accurate job simulation where you're really doing the job. You have this workplace that you have to organize and you can move things around on it. There's stuff in that game that's, you know, that feels unlike unlike any other games. There are also a lot of VR games that are sort of like really weird concepts, you know, surprising things. I mean, actually, Job Simulator comes to mind, but because the the method of interaction with the game is like so novel, the, the game can just be unlike anything else. You know, Rock Band VR, for example, which is kind of a rock band game, but then when you're actually playing it, it just doesn't feel like anything else. And I would say that is a one-of-a-kind experience that I don't really know... I mean, I don't know when that will ever be replicated or when there will be a reason to. And playing it feels really special. There are a lot of games like that that feel like You that should way. start a company that makes, manufactures plastic instruments and ships them around the world. It just feels like good business these right, days. Right. Oh, that, yeah. That's kind of one of my predictions, right? I, I, I feel think like it that's is. Gonna, yeah, I feel like that was one of yeah. Well, and then Harmonix got purchased by Epic Games to make Fortnite music. Yeah. Um, my answer is Dark Souls. I wish there were more games like Dark Souls. Not <laughs> trying, to, trying to do that. Um, <laughs> No, yeah, Return of the Overdead was my answer. I don't know. I can't really think of anything else that is just like that striking and unique. Although Eleanor is a good one, although the game was so flawed, mm-hmm. it could have. I, I would, I would have liked to see an Eleanor too that kind of improved on what was cool about that game and did away with what wasn't because that game is really fascinating. Yeah. Also, I know Bully is a game that people talk about a lot with a similar vein. I've never played it, but I know enough about it to understand why. I mean, it's a social manipulation slash etiquette style game (laughs) and (laughs) anything in that realm, which L.A. Noir, you're figuring out who is and isn't lying and, and collecting clues. Any of those social engineering style games are always really fascinating to me because they never quite feel right. But the challenge of how, of trying to adapt that real life scenario into a game is, I, I don't know, I respect it. I respect anybody who's trying to take it on because it can result in some interesting problems, but also some <laughs> unforgettable games. You know, one that comes to mind is Doki Doki Literature Club, because I feel like we're actually yep. seeing more games like this. My One More Thing is going to be a game that's like this. Um, and um, Inscription is another example of this kind of a game, a game that gradually breaks apart and reveals itself to you in layers that you couldn't possibly have expected. Mm-hmm. And I think Doki Doki does a great job of that because it f- at least feels unique because it presents as such a familiar type of game, you know, the sort of anime dating sim. And then it so completely subverts what you're expecting. I don't know if I've ever played a game that went that hard against what it presents as. So that game does strike me as one of a kind, despite the fact that there are games that that do the same thing. But each game that does that kind of thing feels one of a kind to me. It's still a kind of a rare thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole breaking the fourth wall isn't unique, but the way in which it, it happens sometimes can be can be made unique. Maddie, to your point, um, there's a game I played last year called Nosha, G-N-O-S. And so 
G-N-O-S-I-A. Oh, yeah, right. I remember that was, uh, about that. that was also a social, kind of a social engineering deduction game that was handled mm-hmm. in a really interesting way. Um, got really repetitive, but basically it was like Among Us, um, except randomized and scripted with like all AI characters. So you had to convince each AI character like, oh, vote for this person. Oh, don't vote for this person. And um, it could, it, it got, it. it was interesting. It was an interesting game. Not my favorite, but an interesting That in a single player game is interesting, right? Because Among Us mm-hmm. works so well because it's, you know, you're in multiplayer, so it works. That was also what was fun about Assassin's Creed multiplayer back when that was still a thing. Mm-hmm. Always unsung and underrated Assassin's Creed multiplayer because you were sneaking around in the city and you could pretend to be other people and blend in with the NPCs mm-hmm. um, a little bit like Spy Party Spy which, Party uh, yeah, yeah. another yeah. another one another of a kind one game a, I yeah. would say yeah. despite definitely. the similarities those two have also people are definitely reprising that Assassin's Creed multiplayer energy in Elden Ring these days so it, it's not like that tactic has been entirely lost that is that's a good point there's all of those there's all those abilities or those tools you can use. To yeah, blend or you can in. just steal another outfit and pretend to be a dead body. It's <laughs> yeah, that's great. right. Anyway, um, all right, let's do a couple more questions. So here is Nick. I'll read this one. Nick says, "Big fan of the show, Max Fun subscriber. Thank you, Nick." Like many older millennials who had a PS1 in the late '90s, original Final Fantasy VII holds a special place in my heart. Um, I like to replay it, and uh, when I replay it, this is me paraphrasing, I dust off my old Brady Games official strategy guide. I love everything about this thing, the design, the maps, the playful editorializing of the author. In the early days of the internet as we know it, these kind of guides were one of the best ways to spend more time with the characters outside of the game. You've all spoken eloquently about the joys of these kinds of paperback guides in previous episodes, and all this has me wondering... What exactly is the deal with game guys? Who writes them? Who is in charge of their accuracy and quality control? How exactly do they fit into the greater ecosystem of the video game industry? Can developers have them taken down or opt out of having a guide walkthrough made altogether? Has any of this changed since guides transitioned from books to being entirely online? Do you think we'll ever return to see a return to the physical strategy guides of old? Seriously, what's the deal? Um... So, yeah, there are kind of two elements to this. One is the old school guides, and then another is kind of like the modern incarnation. Um, And uh, I want to say, so I actually interviewed a guy named Doug Walsh a couple years ago for Kotaku, um, who spent like 18 years writing video game guides for Brady Games and Prima. And he published this memoir, um, we can throw a link in the show notes, called The Walkthrough. Um, That was pretty interesting. And I can also, we'll also link to um, to my my article, my Q&A with him, because I was actually asking him about this process. Like, hey, how did you figure this stuff out? Like, how in advance did you get builds? And he was saying that, like, things really change over time, but, like, they would get um, games really far in advance. They would get early builds of games, and they would work with the developers because a lot of times these were, like, official guides. So it wasn't, like, them doing it for Polygon, like, as Mm -hmm. professional journalists. It was them actually working with the developers and, like, getting all the secrets from them. So that is, like, a very different world than today's modern guide system, which is, like, people writing on the fly. If they're lucky, they'll get review codes to games. Um, But, yeah, uh, uh, Maddie, you have a lot of insight on, like, the today's guide writing process. Yeah, it, as Jason says, it's, it's, reporters who are writing it, although at least in Polygon's case, it is people who are guides writers. We have an entire team of people whose entire job is to write guides and to play games with an eye towards technical writing and clearly explaining how each piece of the game works and also 
pitching, which is an unsung skill in guides writing, I would say, which is playing a game and guessing which aspects of it people won't be able to figure out or they might not even realize they won't figure out or need like certain items that they're going to end up looking for and then putting Figuring together out what people are going to Google. And yeah. Otherwise. Yeah. And then putting together like a long-term plan of what guides to write. All of these are styles of thinking that I don't possess, but I strongly respect because I use our guides and many other guides all the time. And whenever I'm reading a good guide, I, I notice it now because I've now edited enough guides that I can tell which ones are clearly written and which ones are like, wait, what do you mean by this sentence? Like, turn around and do what now? That's a whole other piece of it. Um, as for how they fit into the greater ecosystem, at least a polygon guides do very well. I can't speak to other sites, but I'm guessing that for most sites that have a section that is guides, those sections are doing pretty well for the website and are considered you know, a, a good source of traffic, as long as you're pretty good at putting together your guides. But as Jason said, we have to rely on getting video game codes. For us, we prioritize the guides team above everyone else because that's that's just how it works. And it means that our guides writers also have to write reviews sometimes. And can developers have them taken down? This is similar to the complaints we've had about embargoes in the past. They can request or have you agree to certain embargo terms about what you'll put in a walkthrough day of or how far ahead of time you can put it out. And sometimes even certain sections of the game where are embargoed to a later time because they expect people won't have gotten there yet. I, I mean, I think that's fine. I, I do hear the much better version of this with the Brady Games official strategy guide where that just sounds like a preferable way to do things. And I realize I'm saying that as a person who works at a website that employs guides writers. But if actual game developers worked with a writer to put together a guide, I feel like that would make a heck of a lot more sense than us trying to figure it out on our own without their help. If that makes any sense, like it does <laughs> yeah, seem, it well, does seem as though something has gone a little wrong there. That that is now the situation we're in. Yeah, it is bizarre, right? And back in the day, that's what would happen because you have these beautiful illustrated Prima guides and Brady yeah. guides that are like official. Yeah, like they're working with the publisher. Um, and yeah, it is kind of bizarre that that just has disappeared. Obviously, it's not it's not bizarre that the print industry disappeared because we've seen that happen, um, and we all know exactly why that happened. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess for publishers, it's not worth it because a game journalists are all doing it now, and b fans will all do it for free on GameFAQs regardless. Oh yeah, absolutely. Although there is some change in this area, like the PS5 now has this option where if you're having trouble with the game, like the UI allows you to click to get help and it shows you videos mm -hmm. that help mm -hmm. you out. And I, I've never used this, but I know Dina was using it when she was playing Bug Snacks, and she was like, it's so great. And I'm like, you, you're putting my coworkers out of work every time you click that button. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think it is interesting that Sony has started to implement something like that, where it's, it's basically a tip system that's embedded within the UI of the PlayStation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the nature of video game tips has changed even in, you know, since I first started writing about games in 2011. I loved writing guides for Kotaku when the guides took the form of 
uh, what did we always call it before you start? Service it was a before post? you start post. Mm-hmm. No, they had it. Oh, yeah. sure. but, but this is even before that buzzword had become a thing. We need more service posts because those do well. This is when we were still learning that service posts did well, mm-hmm. and then deciding to do more. Um, and we would call it before you start. Before you start, tips for playing Assassin's Creed for Black Flag or Bloodborne. I remember everyone for Bloodborne that did well. And that was a very different process than what Polygon does now, certainly, or than what exists on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that process because I would have played a lot of Bloodborne and I think I actually had a pretty good sense of what people would struggle with. And it was a catch-all article. It was just... Here's a bunch of stuff that you want to know. And I remember my number one thing that I always tried to do was give people specific tips. Like, tell them what to do. Because I knew I was really channeling my own experience into the articles. And whenever I was stuck in a game, I would Google, like, okay, you know, in a Souls game, for example, like, what kind of a build do I do? Mm -hmm. And then there were just people being like, well, it doesn't really matter. Just follow your heart. You can respec. It's fine. And I was like, no, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety and I just (laughs) want someone to tell me what to do. Yeah. And so I'd always try to give people actual answers. And I remember I had all these opinions about like what made a good one of these posts or a bad one. And those opinions are kind of obsolete now because it's become so much more granular on the internet, when you look now, it's like there's a whole post for just how to beat one boss or mm-hmm. like how to beat or one level. Or just builds. And it's like, here's every build you could possibly make. Or like magic builds. And there's a whole page just for magic builds. And so it gets so granular that you have to really be looking for something specific, which is useful when you're looking for something specific. But it's a different skill set. Um, Jason and my uh, our friend Mike Rougeau wrote a bunch of Elden Ring guides for Polygon. And it was really interesting talking to him as he worked on this process, I won't betray too much, though. I don't think Mike <laughs> would care. But it was, a, I mean, he played the game so many times and learned things so much because he was writing these unbelievable guides. I read some of them and they're yeah. like, you know, everything that you're going to do. I've used some of them. I'm not ashamed to say. No, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> great. I mean, everything you can find in Raya Lucaria Academy, like the whole yeah. thing, every boss, every moveset, every power up. And it's like, it's so exhaustive and just a very different kind of writing. Mm-hmm. Mm. And a different kind of playing game game that can be very exhausting and that our oh, guides writers yes. have described yes. like a very specific kind of burnout that's different from the other forms of burnout that happen yeah. in the other pieces of what we do. Yeah, it's a really specific way of playing a game. I know it was it was pretty exhausting for him. Um, but then it also has led to like, like, I mean, Polygon's examples are really good. I mean, the, the the Polygon example, that's a great guide because Polygon has good guides. You pay people, like you have editors, you really run it through a thing. So much of the internet is just like these trash guides that are either copied from somewhere or incomplete or just thrown up the minute the game comes out and no Mm -hmm. one actually knows how this stuff works. Elden Ring was this way for a long time. And like you'll click on it and sometimes there's nothing there. That happens to me, especially now that I'm almost the end of Elden Ring where I'll click on guides and it's like a blank page where I can just tell it's like a placeholder has been put here. That's like, uh, we'll do a guide on every item in Azula Mm -hmm. at some point, but... Sorry, mm-hmm. it's not here yet. Those like it's really rough. dense, stat-heavy Japanese games, like a Monster Hunter, is always notorious for this too. You're trying to figure out, you know, how to upgrade a weapon, and there's just this thing that's like we don't really know, but there'll be something <laughs> here eventually. Yeah. So it's just a different world from like when I was a kid, and I would I would totally read guides because I wasn't allowed to own that many video games, and I would read like Nintendo Power and mm-hmm. and other guidebooks that you could buy through Scholastic or whatever, just because it was it was almost like reading a you know a Let's Play <laughs> because I couldn't play the game and yeah. uh, things are are very different now 
Yeah, it was super fun. I did that all the time. I read them. I had I, I have a stack in the corner of my office of all the guides that I used to read just at dinner and stuff. Kirk, to your point, I think that like what's what was cool about the before you starts that we did at Kotaku is that it felt very much like you were going to a friend who had played the game and asking them for advice, and they were just telling you like, okay, here is what you should do, and they were like talking to you like a human being would talk and just writing to you like, here's a big list of tips. They were fun. They were fun to write. Yeah, it, but it felt like you were you emailed a friend and they. Like emailed you back like a long helpful guide or something mm-hmm. like that. Same with the strategy guides. We're reading it like oftentimes these guys would have their own personality, they would have their own voice. They would really capture something about like telling your friend about the game. The granular guides, you kind of lose something along the way, either because a they're bad and like feel like they're written by AI, or b in the case when they're not bad, they're so granular that they're just about this one specific thing, and it's not yeah. nearly as fun or as entertaining to read um, as as a before you start might be or as a standard walkthrough might be. Sure. I mean, the big walkthroughs that I've used in the last two years are the Final Fantasy VI walkthrough that we talked about a lot last year and the Suikoden Mm -hmm. 2 one that I'm using now. And those are such a different world because, you know, they're all text. They're those big text walkthroughs. They take forever to search through, but they're kind of the grammar is pretty questionable. They're all Mm -hmm. over the place. But there's also very clear fingerprints of this one human being who put an unfathomable amount of work into, like, creating this incredible chronicle of this very dense, um, kind of opaque old game. And I find that very charming. It's, like, actually an enjoyable part of playing uh, both of those games. Um, Let's do a couple more questions. Maddie, give us Colin's question. Okay. So, Colin wrote, what kind of game would you want to play if you could mash up any game genre with any classic IP franchise, be it from a movie, a TV show, book series, Broadway play, folklore, tale, etc.? Here are a few examples I came up with to get the ball rolling. An Adventure Time open world RPG, a Wizard of Oz strand type walking simulator, a West Side Story rhythm action game, a Sesame Street collectible card battler. <laughs> battler surprises me there. Sesame Street, I, I don't know what to say to that. A Seinfeld point-and-click adventure. The possibilities are endless. Uh, thank you for your ever-thoughtful conversations. Um, I love the idea of a Seinfeld point-and-click adventure. I... So I just think we should make that happen. I feel like there there has been there, there, have been there surely Seinfeld, there's like, been a fan made Seinfeld um, game. My my answer is a fiddler on the roof role playing game where you play as Tevye the milkman and you have to. It's fight. like a dating sim plus fight. <laughs> well, there's a matchmaker section. You go yeah. to the matchmaker and you do some matchmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to. Good luck. Uh, actually, maybe it would be more of a Stardew Valley type game. Uh, I could see build, that. You have to run your shtetl. You have to fight off the. Mm-hmm. The Cossacks and set up um, your kids accordingly. The one of the bad guys you fight is, of course, the Laser Wolf. I know is, uh, the coolest name ever. Beams. I feel like the, the final boss would be the inexorable march of progress. Tevye <laughs> 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 really, sure. really kind of loses to that one. Sure. Yeah, That's sunrise, not, sunset, or maybe the final bosses. The, Destructive march of history, maybe. Yeah, sure. Um, well, also Fruma Sarah uh, is also a boss. She's like sure. a haunted ghost too. You know, uh, you could do like a platformer where you play the fiddler, and it's all a big metaphor just gotta get up for to living your life. You know, jumping along <laughs> on the roof. But what about you guys? Do you have suggestions for this? I have one. Um, so I, I've always wanted to play a really great heist 
video game. Mm. And there have been heist sequences in games. Persona 5 was built around heist, but it wasn't really that way. Actually, Detroit Become Human, the most, the part where that game lurches to life for a couple of chapters is during a heist sequence. Like, heists are a lot of fun, and they kind of... What about Monaco? Monaco is like... Well, I wouldn't call Monaco a a heist game, though. Like, Monaco (laughs) is a very fun, chaotic, stealth action game, but it's not what I'm talking about. So... I would want a heist game that is either, you know, Ocean's Eleven is the obvious, like, get those characters in there, or stylized versions of those characters. But also, having watched a lot of Leverage, Leverage would actually be really oh, fun. Yeah. Because Leverage just has a the, the the sort of the hitter, the thief, the, you know, the grifter. They have the, these sort of archetypes. Mm-hmm. And you could the build mastermind. your... Yeah, you're the mastermind, presumably. Crew, the mastermind, yeah. and you would be the mastermind, of course. You just want multiplayer Hitman. That's what you want. Well, so I think Hitman provides a good template for this, but also I was thinking, how would this game work? You know, Hitman is, is pretty heisty, like, when you get into it. Um, multiplayer Hitman could be cool. This doesn't uh, have to be multiplayer, though. I actually like the idea of controlling multiple characters at once. The game Invisible Ink, which I'm guessing neither of you played, this was a turn-based, kind of XCOM-like, but it was a stealth game. So it wasn't like combat, it was sneaking, and you were doing all this stuff to manipulate, you know, the you're trying to infiltrate a building basically and steal the code from the computer, and you needed to not be seen by the guards in the security system. So each turn, you kind of know what everyone's gonna do, and you're like, problem solving your way through them. Some of the stealth sequences in XCOM 2 kind of feel this way too. So that could be pretty cool. But then I think that a heist game can't just be the part where you break in because that's cool. But like a heist movie, you know, the genre of heist, you know, entertainment, it's so about, you know, the motivations and the plot and coming up with a thing where you're going to steal from the bad guy, but in a way that also like takes, you know, what he really likes, like the whole Danny Ocean thing. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a narrative element to it as well. That's kind of what's not as present in a game like Invisible Ink and could be really cool. So I would love to play a game that maybe it's like a leverage branded game, but you make your own characters just because this is an IP question. It doesn't actually even have to be one. Doesn't GTA Online have stuff like this? I haven't played it. No, because it's like Grand Theft Auto. So it's, yeah, I mean, you're kind of sneaking in, but it doesn't have like, it's not as neat or self-contained. It doesn't feel like that big grand heist story. And then also they frequently get very violent, which in the true heist storytelling, like, you're not right, you killing people. Like, yeah, you right. want to avoid you know, Occasionally, that. maybe, um, what's his name, Oscar? Is that his name? Why am I thinking his name is Oscar? What's the hitter's name from, from Leverage? Oh, God. I don't oh, no, know. I have to look it up now. Leverage characters. I can only remember Hardison and Parker, unhelpfully. Elliot, 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 not Oscar. Uh, Elliot's kind of an Oscar name. Elliot, who always gets to beat a few people up each episode and then sing some country because he's a country musician. Um, you, you, there's a little bit of that, but mostly you're supposed to be getting in without being seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's my thought on this question. Sometimes bad guys make the best good guys. leverage. I like that. I like the turn-based idea. I felt like what was missing from Monaco not to go too far down that rabbit hole was that you never get to plan the heist. You only do the heist and planning the heist is what makes up the bulk of a heist movie or heist TV Mm. show episode because it's the fun part. It's where you get into everybody's personal motivations, but also you figure out how it's going to work and then you do it without a hitch, sort of like the end of death loop. If it were more satisfying to do everything without a hitch. Uh, So I'm sort of imagining some combination. Or if you could plan the end of Deathloop rather than just having to follow a single path. Exactly. Or perhaps there is a single path, but the story's interesting enough that it somehow makes it worth it and you only have to do it the one actual time 
correctly as opposed to like over and over again. So I think some combination of those ideas would work really well. Um, mm. My idea is I just think there should be a Murder, She Wrote game. There probably is, and I'm going to hear about it as soon as I've right. we've released this episode. <laughs> like an L.A. Noir style yeah, that you're, you're playing. Like a cozy Jessica. mystery point-and-click adventure. I, I just, those, that show is so formulaic to a fault, or perhaps its greatest strength, because it's deeply comforting to me. So having it be a game or just an endless series of games seems like it would hit the spot in an identical way to the show itself. It could be like there, Wildermyth, where it like generates a Murder, She Wrote episode for you as you play, and it would just all line up for you. There are all those Sherlock Holmes games, the consulting I love detective those, games. Yeah. Quite, there's a lot of those. And the old point-and-click Sherlock Holmes games are almost more what I'm picturing when I picture uh-huh. a Murder, She Wrote. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. These are great ideas. Um, all right. Next question. Whose turn is it? Kirk, is it your turn? Yeah, I guess it is. This comes from Danielle. Danielle writes, hello, Maddie, Jason, and Kirk. I'm a devoted listener of the show since Kotaku, but I also listen to a ton of other podcasts. Since the pandemic started, I don't get to drive quite as much as before, so one way to get my podcasts in more efficiently is to listen at 2x speed. It made me think about gaming and how some Final Fantasy re-releases, and maybe other games too, had a double speed button to make certain tedious parts of the game go by faster. As a very busy freelance filmmaker, I rarely get to play games these days, but I wonder if a 2x button will become the norm in the future to fit busier lifestyles. More and more games are becoming mindful of accessibility and quality of life upgrades, so it's something I thought might become a standard option in the future. What do you think? How do you feel about podcasts and games at 2x speed? As a filmmaker, I'd hate for people to watch my film at 2x speed. Do podcast <laughs> hosts feel the same way? <laughs> I love that. I do not. No, I think all games should have a, t- a, a fast forward button, uh, especially like long JRPGs. And I think that if you want to listen to us talk really fast and high pitched and squeaky, then then please go Enjoy. ahead. Uh, you have my blessing. Yeah. Couple, I've heard so many stories from people about this. I think I will say that I think that Strong Songs, my other podcast, a music focused podcast, extru- really suffers at. 2x speed and i know from a lot of people who have been like i listen to every podcast at double speed but yours and they mean that as a compliment which i take as a compliment because and also it just makes it sound crazy like you can't get that oral experience if you're if you're listening faster though i'm sure some people manage to pull it off i don't know i remember there were some viral tweets posts about listening to music at 2x speed just as a way to troll people like to imagine that that was a trend that was starting because (laughs) everybody already listens to podcasts at 2x speed and in in this case plays games at 2x speed and it's just funny to imagine somebody being like i just got to get through this playlist faster like i want to listen to more music (laughs) i want to listen to more music as fast as possible at least 2x speed <laughs> seems preferable to one and a half speed because one and oh, a half speed throws off all the weird. timing. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people use. I met I met someone uh, who was like, or I talked to someone on the phone who was like, "It's so weird hearing your voice at, at like normal <laughs> yes, speed." People say that to me um, too. I've gotten that a few weird. times. Well, and the way that you hear it in specifically is that the person sounds inebriated in some way. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. I I'll never forget this was uh, actually slowing a voice down. I was transcribing Tim Schafer after a GDC interview. This is double. Yep. finds Tim Schafer, writer of so many video games, um, and a very funny guy, a very, you know, loquacious guy, likes to talk and tell jokes. And um, he, when he slowed down, he just sounded like the biggest stoner you've ever heard. Like, everything he said. <laughs> I mean, everyone does. It's it's not just Tim, but it's I can really funny. picture some was... Tim Schaferisms at two, at two times Well, and he Because ha- he has a kind of a, like, he has a kind of a groovy way of speaking, and it's just like, 
it made me think about gaming <laughs> and how some Final Fantasy. Re- it was so funny, and I, I was it was helpful because I can't type super fast. But I was like laughing so hard. I was like, I can't do this anymore. It's just too weird. And then yeah, people will say to us, when I hear you at normal speed, it makes you all sound like you're drunk, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Great, that's a it's great so way funny to that you have that one memory because I feel like I I have gotten so used to that. I'm sure transcribing so many interviews. Every right, years, right, like, yeah, and. At slow speed, which is essential. Are there any games that y'all feel like playing at two times speed would be completely impossible? I mean, obviously, anything that requires reaction time, but it would be really funny if somebody was like, yeah, I played Halo Infinite at 2x speed, like, whatever. (laughs) thought it was really fun. (laughs) Yeah, only certain games really support it. Why isn't that a brag? Like, who's who? why aren't people playing Elden Ring offline at 2x speed and posting it? (laughs) Come on, get it together, people. This part of the question, I think, is really interesting. Just playing, you know, versions of old games for this show that we can fast forward through and that this is a much more common thing in old games, which matches up with the fact that old games also tend to waste your time a lot more. These old JRPGs we go into Final Fantasy VI. Wow, I, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and now he's like, I totally disagree. <laughs> Wonderful use of time. I'm treasuring every moment, but go so on. So I fast forwarding through a lot of um, the like combat and traversal in Suicoden 2 is a really funny experience. I mean, it oh, yeah. it does make me think it'd be nice if this were standard in every game, in part because just if you're feeling like you just want to get somewhere and if the game is making you walk across the whole map, just like 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 holding on a button that just makes the thing fly by is really nice, but it does change the difficulty of the game. Like I'll be running around the castle and sweet coded and just like go flying across the castle, like to the wrong place. And like always, you know, it's, there are times where I have to kind of learn a new way of playing. It's a little more arcadey almost mm-hmm. uh, like a different kind of a game. Yeah. You got to get your Twitch speed up, well, but you can, you set it, what you do is you set it. So you have to hold down the trigger to, to be fast forward. Oh no, I know, but I mean, but it's fun not to, and to okay. run around the castle as fast as possible and make sure you still hit the right exit. There are things like, okay, you'll both be able to relate to this for the section that we're playing. When you're in the castle, to get up to the boat, which you have to do over and over and over because you have to get on the boat to go to the like lake side place to go to the next place. And like to get to the boat, you run straight up into the castle, but the castle isn't a bunch of straight lines. So it's like then you have to cut over to the right through a little door. Then you go into the door that leads with the anchor over it, but then you have to go in a circle down some stairs and then up into a doorway that's under the stairs you went down. So you have to do a circle. And if you do that for the seventh time, you're like, okay, I'm going to try to go really fast. And mm-hmm. it becomes this like, okay, can I do it without like getting stuck on anything? And it's kind of its own, it's like this it's own little challenge. Pattern. It's a fun little challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get it. Mm-hmm. I like I that. It. I like that. I'm going to do that later. I'm going to see if I can do it in one. I think like frame rate and speed are so inexorably tied to the way that the game plays that in modern games, this isn't really... Yeah, it's kind of absurd. It has to be something that's old enough that your hardware can just be like, let's just quadruple the frame rate and make this whole thing run super fast, which isn't something that hardware can do for for current games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Although there are times that I... It is funny, though, when you're a kid and you're playing an old game and then your parents finally upgrade the computer and then the old game runs ridiculously (laughs) fast and it becomes Mm -hmm. completely unplayable. That certainly happened in my house a couple of times. Sure, this was the thing with with like Skyrim where the frame rate, the game is tied to the frame rate in certain ways. So like you'll go to like, I don't know, things like things will age 
age super fast or like <laughs> mechanics in the game will happen way faster than they're supposed to if you unlock the frame rate, which is always sort of funny. Amazing. So wait, so you guys haven't answered the question. Kirk, you sort of did. Do you guys feel like, would you hate for people to listen to our podcast at two times the speed? No, no, it's fine well, with me. No, it's oh, okay. fine with this show because I think you're still getting the essential experience. And like I said, I, I do think, I do recommend people not listen to strong songs in that way because I think right. that that anything, is actually well, anything that requires pacing and that the the creators are deliberate with the pacing um, and the, music. The author I mean, here, Danielle, wrote that they would hate for people to watch their films at two at two times the speed, and I think that's because like there's a little bit more deliberate like choices involved as opposed to the three of us just like talking for it's her. Yeah. that and it's that music is straight up ruined. Like I mean, the <laughs> Sweet Coden soundtrack, I really love it, but when I play that game fast forwarded, the that's music part is. Of Pacing. gone like it's just yeah vanished as an element right yeah i mean but it's also probably true that if we were playing sweet code in at normal speed we would have a different take on it hypothetically yes like I young jason true. playing it at regular speed yeah to be clear i was talking about podcasts i wasn't talking about games there yeah. i was talking about the sure. pacing of podcasts versus like like our podcast doesn't require any sort of like deliberate like slow down and like yeah. if yeah. we were doing on the other hand if we were doing like some sort of narrative podcast where like we put a little more thought into like the pauses and the music breaks mm -hmm. we should read poetry on here i think we should start <laughs> we should, doing yeah. that well, but I also people should listen to the theme song at least once at normal speed because it freaking rules that's, that's just true. my personal opinion um all right <laughs> we're gonna take a break and then we will be back with some poetry <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone who participated in this year's Max Fun Drive. If you're a member who wants to purchase additional patches, our annual shop is now live. The proceeds for this year's sale will be going to Trans Lifeline. Anytime is a good time to donate to Trans Lifeline, but this year it feels particularly important. Trans Lifeline is a nonprofit for the trans community by the trans community. We're grateful that with your support, we'll be able to help Trans Lifeline connect trans folks to the support and resources they need to survive and thrive. The sale will run until Friday, May 20th. Folks at the $10 monthly level and above will have access to all of the patches from the drive. We also have a special network patch starring Nutsy that all members can purchase. For more information on Trans Lifeline, visit translifeline.org. And for more information on the patches, head to MaximumFun.org slash patch sale. Hey, this is Alden Ford. And Mujan Zafagari. And we are here with all the other creators of Mission to Zix. Hello. Hello. You're not going to say our names, too? No, no, it's a short promo. Yeah. yeah, sort of speed Now, with it. the end of our fifth and final season just a few weeks away, we want to say thank you to Maximum Fun and to every single one of you who has listened to and supported Mission to Zix. Thank you. And if you haven't checked it out, well, Mission to Zix is an improvised space opera with blockbuster quality sound design, a score performed by an actual 60 Peace Orchestra and hilarious guest comedians on every episode. And as our final episodes air, now is the perfect time to jump on board. Mm -hmm. That's Mission to Zix, Z-Y-X-X on Maximum Fun. And we are back. It is time for one more thing. Um, Kirk, why don't you take us away? And we are back. We will not sing. Instead, we will do one more thing. <laughs> I was waiting for you to do some kind of a rhyme. <laughs> that was good. That was good. All right, so that's Kirk's one more thing. And that was it. It was my little, my little couplet. Um, my one more thing is a fake out because the one more thing that I'm talking about is also a fake out. 
it says here that my one more thing is the Stanley Parable Ultra Deluxe, which is a new expanded version of the Stanley Parable. But it's not really my one more thing because I'm not going to say I don't want to say anything about it except that people should play it because it's crazy and really cool. Um, playing it on Steam Deck? That's why I was going to play it. Yes, I have been, though it doesn't have a reticle on Steam Deck yet, um, which is sort of a bummer. But it's still playable. Um, But yeah, this is uh, just a... That's all I'm going to say about it. It's really cool. And in the grand tradition of the Stanley Parable, saying that it's one thing and then faking you out and surprising you, I'm just going to say that my actual one more thing is the movie Venom, which I just watched on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, I told you to watch Venom. Because <laughs> I knew that this would excite Maddie, and I wanted to tell Maddie that I watched Venom. <laughs> yes. I can't believe I hadn't seen Venom. Venom ruled. It oh, was an awesome movie. So good. <laughs> so good. After feeling so, I felt kind of disappointed. I was kind of disappointed by Spider Man No Way Home, mm-hmm. though, of course, there is a mild Venom reference in that. And I was like, oh, yeah, Venom. And I was also, I kind of never internalized that Tom Hardy is the star of that movie. Wow. So you're just pleasantly surprised by the Tom Hardy of it all. When I learned that, I was like, well, of course Tom Hardy is going to be in one of these. He's like one of the most interesting actors anywhere right now. He's this amazing guy, and he's never really been in a superhero movie. Uh, Bane, dude? That's true. Yeah, but I mean, he's never starred as a superhero. Uh, okay. I mean, his, his performance um, is pretty incredible in that movie. I you thought. think? I think it's oh, so yeah, weird. I, I rewatched that movie that recently. Movie. That is such a strange movie, and his performance is very strange. I mean, he sounds like Deckard Kane from Diablo. It's hilarious. He's doing a, a whole thing in that movie. Stay a while. And listen, it's it's cool, and I, I know he loves to use his voice. The fire rises, but uh, no, my what I'm saying is he, a modern like where he's the hero of a yeah. superhero film. Like he's he hasn't done that yet, which is surprising. He's such a great actor, and he's such a freaking weirdo, and he's so weird in this movie, and that's what makes it great. There are so many line deliveries that he gives that are just. No other actor would have read the line that way. Mm-hmm. And that was the experience of watching the movie. It was just me like laughing and laughing and laughing at how much fun he was having doing this, the whole thing of like being possessed by a monster and then doing the voice of the monster and arguing with himself and just being covered in sweat and like falling apart and losing it and like having like a breakdown in the middle of a restaurant and like throwing stuff and climbing into a fountain. And I mean, it's just scene after scene after scene. It's so much fun. It has this like anarchic... I don't give a shit energy that I just haven't felt from Marvel movies in so long because it's just not a Disney Marvel movie. It's just that other kind of Mm -hmm. thing. It's Fox, right? Yeah. But it's not the kind of played out Deadpool thing either where it's like winking at you and being like, haha, like violence. He's like eating people's heads. It's just like a cool monster movie that's really funny and fun. And I really liked it. I was like, I just, I was kind of disappointed by, like I said, Spider-Man and also I liked um, Doctor Strange. I went and saw that in theaters. And it was like, it was cool, but it still had this Marvel thing that everything mm-hmm. Marvel just has. It's very slick. It's very, very produced slick. in a certain way. It is fun that Venom has parts of it that are kind of bad. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy to say, but it, no, but it feels yes. <laughs> underdeveloped in certain ways. And yes. it has some room to be strange and take risks that don't pay off and don't work at all but then it also takes takes risks that i think are incredible and perfect and right. it's it's fun to see a movie like that in a in a time period where it feels like every superhero movie is every edge has been sanded off into just a fine crystal sheen and it all fits together. Well, that's very much not the case of Doctor Strange too. Well, well I haven't seen it yet. I well, seen so it the yet. way, but the way that Venom is like channeling horror movie, like monster yeah. movie energy, because what's remarkable about Doctor Strange is 
that Sam Raimi made it. And the final act of that movie, I will not say more, but it, there's like some real Raimi stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to see personality, like a director's personality yeah. just like firing off on the screen. I'm like, yes, like I rarely feel that way when watching Marvel movies. And yeah, there's totally stuff in Venom. Plus it's just, it's not afraid to be weird and kind of like kinky and like funky. And just, it has all this like weird dark energy going on that's just it's just kind of a b movie in in a really good way so yeah i really liked it um I, i'm gonna watch let there be carnage just because yeah, i got too. a like stars subscription and <laughs> <laughs> now i can watch it so amazing um, I'm, I'm totally gonna watch that movie too but yeah now i am now a venom fan uh it's a, it's a good movie great annie what's your one more thing so mine is also a movie. This was not planned. Uh, so this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I got to show it to Dina this past weekend because it's on HBO Max. And it is a 1972 romantic comedy called What's Up, Doc? It doesn't have Bugs Bunny in it at all. I don't know why it's mm. called that. This was an era when people would just title movies whatever they wanted, I think. And it didn't really <laughs> matter what the content of the movie was. That wasn't how it was marketed. So the movie uh, has nothing to do with the title. <laughs> Not really. I mean, uh, Barbara Streisand stars in it. She says that at least one time while eating a carrot. So there's that. Uh, So she plays a manic pixie dream girl who also has sort of an uncanny power to cause accidents wherever she goes. And she gets to use her comedy chops in this movie in so many ways and I adore her. She's basically a scammer who sees Ryan O'Neill, who was like a heartthrob of the era, but he's playing a huge nerd in this movie and she just becomes completely obsessed with him and is like, I'm gonna make this happen. And the jokes, like people talk about how old movies have really slow paced jokes, but this movie is so fast paced. I have seen this movie hundreds of times and I still laugh at it and notice new things or facial expressions in it. Oh, and also Madeline Kahn is um, the fiance that <laughs> Barbara Streisand Wikipedia and getting very excited. Bra- forces Ryan, Ryan O'Neill to break up with. So I just, I really love this movie. It is one of my favorite movies of all time for a reason. And I never hear anyone talk about it ever. How did like, you discover this? I've never heard of it. How did this become one of your favorite movies? It was one of my mom's favorite movies as a kid. Mm, okay. I think just because she thought Ryan O'Neill was a hunk and watched stuff, she's going to call me and be like, Maddie, that's not the reason. It was purely Barbara Streisand's comedy chops. I don't know why my mom <laughs> liked it, but she introduced me and my sister to it. We became obsessed. We quoted it for years. And every time I watch it again, I'm like, I see exactly why we did this, because this is one of the greatest, funniest movies ever made. And I, oh, I'm really over recommending it but it's because i want more people to know how good it is like it's that good i will watch this movie i'm totally gonna watch this movie i also had never heard of it and it sounds delightful do it you're gonna have a great time what's up doc what's up doc 1972 it's on hbo max yeah um my one more thing is a book called disrupting the game by reggie fils this is a memoir by the former president of nintendo of america that just came out last week what a missed opportunity, can I say, that he didn't call his book My Body is Ready. Right? Mm. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that if you saw that at a bookstore, you would <laughs> You might think it was about of, something else? You would think it was mm, okay. a little bit you different. You would immediately buy it? <laughs> um, I'm not sure that would have worked. Um, but yeah, this this book is really interesting. It's not like, um, uh, it's not a book that is, so it's it's a memoir about his life. 
only a small portion of it is actually about Nintendo. A lot of it is about his upbringing and his time at other companies because he was a marketing executive at like Procter and Gamble and Pizza Hut and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of it is just like business leadership principle stuff. It's also a very light read. It's only like 200 pages. So don't go into this book expecting like actual interesting insight from Nintendo or anything like that. That said, it's an interesting read. And like if you out there um, grew up or like spent the past few years enjoying watching Reggie fils me like on stage at E3 and you thought he was an interesting person who you want to know more about, um, this is definitely worth it. Um, and I actually interviewed him about the book. Um, I can link to the Bloomberg piece. I, I uh, probed him on Mother 3 and <laughs> he gave me a tangible, a concrete answer for the first time ever, which is basically that Mother 3 never <laughs> came here because of business reasons, not because of the risque content. Um, wow. And they discussed it a few times but just cannot make it work. I think a lot of people have theorized and there had been like even reporting suggesting that it was because of the content in Mother 3, which has some some like um, some gender issues, some like ambiguous gender characters who people thought that Nintendo wouldn't want to have to deal with. But Reggie denies that. Anyway, so the book um, is interesting. I asked him about a few things in it. I asked him, I actually asked him about, uh, he has like these these kind of key stories that he references in the book, um, one of which being that he regrets he was not able to convince NCL, Nintendo Japan, to cut the price of the 3DS from 250 to 199 And therefore, as a result, the 3DS kind of had a tepid launch and they had to slash the price anyway, like a few months afterwards. Um, but it's funny because I asked him his biggest regret from his time at Nintendo and it was that, which is basically him saying, my biggest regret is that I was right and I couldn't convince other people to be right. <laughs> yeah, is that um, a regret? I don't know. It's a very Reggie answer though. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a very Reggie answer. But yeah, there's some interesting stuff in there. He talks a lot about his relationship with Iwata and Iwata passing away and how that affected him and that was really interesting. Um, it seems like, uh, as we all kind of knew and suspected, the the um, that NOA, Nintendo of America, really had to battle Nintendo of Japan on a lot of things and like Nintendo of Japan always had the final say no matter what um, that was that was always a thing um, he talks about he, he spends like two pages total talking about the Switch and the Wii U which is unfortunate I thought there would be more room for reflection there um, and uh, yeah I mean it's interesting it's it's worth worth looking into um, also a couple of bonus pieces from my interview with him in case you guys are curious uh, I asked him do you guys remember a while back there was a report from Ben Fritz at, I think he was at the Wall Street Journal at the time saying that Nintendo was doing a Zelda Netflix show and then there was a report later that um, because of that report the Zelda Netflix show was cancelled because it leaked in the first place it was cancelled anyway I asked Reggie about this he just says there's nothing for me to add to that story I have no dramatic <laughs> Insight there, <laughs> very um, helpful response. Okay. Uh, I asked him. I was I was asking him a little bit about the future of Nintendo and like what he saw. He was like, "Well, I'm just a fan. Like I know as much as you knew." Um, but yeah, I feel right, like, Reggie. He's just a fan. <laughs> yeah, know. He knows more than we um, know. He's just no, a he fan. Does. He was he was saying that he left three years ago. He was saying he left them with like a two year game plan, and I'm sure he knows tons of stuff about what's coming. Yeah. But so basically, I asked him about like. Um, uh, one of the questions that we all have, which is that if Nintendo comes out with a Switch 2, is it just going to be like another fuck you reset thing where it's like brand new console, brand new everything, have to buy all new games for it, like 
ports from the switch or whatever and he was essentially like yeah i think that they know better like that i think the company recognizes that today's consumer wants to continue engaging with content on a much longer term basis than simply going from cycle to cycle that's what he said so that kind of suggests to me that they get it there i I mean i love to engage with content on a long-term basis (laughs) yeah right (laughs) On a longer cycle, if possible. Longer, yeah. That's yes. how that's how marketing executives talk. Speaking of how Reggie talks, I hear he reads the audiobook on this one, which is if I read this oh, book at I all, the way I intend to consume absolutely it. Absolutely agree. I would love to listen to Reggie tell me his own story. And on one X speed, thank you very much. Yes, I will be absolutely. hearing Reggie's voice undiluted and undisturbed. Do you like to listen to him talk? Yeah, it's yeah. nice. Um, last thing I asked him about that I'll just throw in real quick is I asked him about switching to Nintendo Directs from live E3 presentations and his answer was pretty straightforward he was like yeah we were pivoting from like executing these big live events was getting more challenging like it, things could go really wrong and we were having a lot of success with these smaller Nintendo Directs and so uh, so they made the pivot um, just after the like around the Wii U time and hmm. uh, seems like uh, he says that other game executives other like CEOs and stuff would come up to him and be like Hey, you guys are doing this the right way. Like we wish we could do it uh, mm. this and way. Now they are. And he would, <laughs> yeah. and well, he would say to them, uh, "So why aren't you?" And they would be like, "Oh, I don't know. It's just how we've always done it." Um, which was which was funny. Uh, was you funny. Know, I talked a little bit about the inertia there, but yeah, no, his book is it's cool. It's it's interesting, um, even though it's kind of weak if you are expecting lots of Nintendo details. So again, if you are interested in it, come into it understanding that this is not going to be like a juicy Nintendo book it's going to be just uh, a, a like a, a life character study of this one guy who had a really interesting life and his kind of business leadership principles that he wants to teach you as a result so it's called disrupting the game reggie fees me uh if you want to check it out nice. cool all right that is it for this week's episode kirk yeah Maddie, see you both next week see you both next week bye Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.